everybody. How we doing today? This is H.T. Waterworth of the Cadillac Ranch. How we doing? How we doing, y'all? I'm ready to have a good time. I got a good interview coming up with you guys with uh, a man that uh, I've just met. Uh, he's a cool dude. Uh, McCormick O'Meara. Um, we got connected because my wife works in San Luis for a glass company and one of the contractors came in. She was telling them how uh, they have a rapport enough where they talk. Uh, they She brought up my podcast and he brought up that he knew a man named McCormick um, that works for the NFL Network. Uh, he's a producer and he had a big long history of a lot of cool things he's done. Great people he'd meet. Awesome stories. So I I had to bring him on the pod. So um, in the beginning of the podcast or the interview, you're going to hear me laugh because I messed up McCormick's name like four times. Um, but he was patient with me. I sound really uh, nervous in the beginning because maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. Um, doesn't matter. Uh, and without further ado, McCormick O'Meara of the NFL Network. All right, so uh, <laughs> McCormick O'Meara, uh, somebody I just uh, found out about. My wife uh, talked to a mutual friend, and then through uh, him, got connected with McCormick, and now we're here. He is a uh, person that's been in the industry, in the sports industry, for a long time. Uh, in 94 to 05, he was in Chicago, and then Chicago to more till 2009. And now he's at the NFL Network. McCormick, how about you introduce yourself and uh, say hello to everybody. Hey, HT. Great to be on your Cadillac Ranch podcast. Yeah, so um, yeah, we talked a few days ago and uh, really excited to be part of your podcast. And yeah, my background um, started in around 94 when the baseball strike happened. I was an intern and all of a sudden there were no local games. So we had a lot of dead air, probably similar to what local sportscasts have been dealing with for the last few months. Totally. And so I got an opportunity to really pick the brains of people in the sports department. And uh, it really was to my advantage. And back then in 94, unions in Chicago were still pretty, pretty difficult when it came to uh, allowing non-union personnel to right. do things. Um, yeah, they would not allow and then turned to eject a tape out of a deck. We couldn't go in minicam trucks. So I was pretty much stuck there. You know, you have interns, I'm sure now, who can hold microphones and go out and do interviews. Back then, that wasn't the case. So it, it was probably to my advantage. And then uh, I was hired back in 95, and it coincided with the second run of Bulls championships. And all right. of a sudden, I go from being an intern to sitting courtside at the United Center for all those uh, games. Um, in 96, 97, 98, interviewing Jordan after a game at the United Center and then turning around to sound by as quickly as we could to get it on the air. And I was, yeah, I was, it was a surreal experience to go from not knowing what I was going to do during my last semester at Loyola in Chicago. And then shortly thereafter, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting sound from, from the Bulls. So it was pretty cool. And, and that was uh, an experience that definitely, um, I just was so fortunate. Chicago is such a great sports town. And the Bulls championships, the Bears were always very interesting. The Blackhawks, I mean, you, you can do uh, 
I mean, no worse than, than Chicago when it comes no. to, uh, to being a sports producer. So when you make that transition from intern to basically boots on the ground, how did you fall into that? Did that you were just like, or did they go like, we like what you're doing. We think that you can be on the ground floor. Like, how did that, how did that switch yeah. happen? So basically, um, when I was an intern, they, you would get college credit and you would have three or four months. It was a semester. You weren't okay. getting paid. And if you showed promise, they would hire you back and you'd make five bucks an hour. And you would get an opportunity to put a resume tape together if you wanted to be in front of the camera. So you could get your start in a real small market. And that's what a lot of was people that did. You, that what you wanted? Did you want to be on camera? I um, initially thought that's what I wanted to do. I majored in communication and okay. I, I was very self-critical of my resume reel. I didn't like how I looked, how I sounded. And it was real difficult to trade being courtside at a Bulls game. Hell yeah. Or for a job in Midland, Texas or, or some small town where you don't know anybody. And, and I was having too much fun in Chicago and I quickly realized I'll, I'll go the producer route and, and it really worked out. That's and awesome. So, uh, yeah, I, my wife started in a real small market and it's tough. I mean, you're doing everything. You're carrying your, your equipment. There are long hours. The pay is brutal. And who knows? I think half the, uh, the people who get their first job in the business, never even get a second job. Either they burn out or, you know, they kind of reach their ceiling in that small market. So Chicago for me, it was kind of surreal. I got my start in Chicago and, and I stayed there. That's so, and like you said, you were right after 94. So that means Michael Jordan's came back from baseball because the strike happened. So he's like, okay, I'll play basketball again. So you, you saw that whole comeback all in front of your eyes. So all these characters and especially from just watching the last dance and seeing all those characters being in the locker room, did it seem that like bigger than life that when you walked into the locker room, like so many uh, big time players and actually great players or was it just like you got used to it where it's like these are the guys basically could you see them every day no no I mean you you quickly realized the uh, the national spotlight that surrounded that team and waiting for a Bulls practice to end at the Berto Center which is where they practice in Deerfield you'd see a Bob Costas who maybe had a one-on-one -on -one schedule later or um Jack, oh, who was the long, Jack Ramsey, who used to coach the Blazers. I mean, you'd see all these people, and, and it was always, you know, you'd have to get there quickly, early, or you, you know, they had, I think, a few couches, and they had, like, a little break area, but it was standing room only most of the time, and they would make you wait. I mean, that was sometimes shoot-arounds would last an hour. Sometimes they would go three hours, four hours. Then the curtains would come up. I mean, they had these uh, blinds that were automatic. And then everyone got in line. And sometimes, you know, you had a Luke Longley or a Judd Bushler or Steve Curry and everyone else was gone. If Jordan didn't want to talk, he wasn't going to be there. And uh, you would just do whatever you could to get a soundbite. If it was Steve Kerr, he was always there, always gracious, always very witty. You could at least get one of those guys. You knew that you weren't going to leave empty-handed. And then Jordan would probably talk two or three times a week. Pippen was, was not the easiest to interview. He wasn't very comfortable talking on camera. Really? Yeah, and so uh, you had your favorites, but yeah, the the Judd Bushlers, the Luke Longleys, the Steve Kerr's, Phil Jackson would always talk. He was always a guaranteed interview, so you kind of got used to the drill. But it was always no, it never got boring or tedious. It was always exciting. There was so much drama surrounding that team 
always. What in in the media when you were doing that? Uh, con- you're considered media, correct? Right? Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. So um, did you was there ever like waiting for Jordan like fights to like get into position or like no I want this time or you got too many sound bites you talked to him too much is there was there any of that frustration just between all you guys waiting for him? Well, yeah, Jordan was somebody everyone got first. I mean, if you would never get lazy and and try and get somebody else if you knew that jordan was going to talk you would probably just wait with everyone else Mm -hmm. because he got shut out camera position wise it was difficult and sometimes yeah you would be ready to go and jordan would go on the opposite side of the floor and then you'd have to kind of scramble and and yeah you might not have the best angle but you could still hopefully get a microphone in at some point but yeah he didn't do too many one-on-ones after practice but after games yeah, there, there was just um, a 20, 30 person scrum that would line, that would circle his, his locker and he would make you wait. And it would sometimes be 45 minutes an hour after game time, but he would always talk and he would, he would answer questions for a good 20 minutes. And then he would always end the interview, kind of like Tom Brady. He right. wouldn't wait you know, for the interview to peter out. He would kind of get a sense. Okay. We talked enough. See you guys later. Got it. Um, I'm reading some of the notes that you sent me over. It said that you talked to Michael Jordan while driving on the one-on-one in Santa Barbara. Explain that. Yeah, that's a story that not too many people believe, but I do have a witness. I had a friend who had an interview at the Santa Maria CBS station back in 96. So this is after they beat the Sonics. And I want to say it was early August. And I was living in Chicago at the time. I grew up in LA. So a few of us read it a Ford Explorer with Illinois plates and drove it from Chicago to LA. At the time, I wasn't a real good flyer, so it appealed to me to drive across country. Right. I had some bad flights. I got the end after that. I was just like, I'm not going to get on a plane. I just want to enjoy my three weeks. I took three weeks off, which is really rare. Um, but so I, I drove up to San Maria with a friend, and as we were driving back around Santa Barbara, I noticed this car behind me was really trying to catch up and kind of going in and out of lanes. I'm like, who is this person? And I noticed it was a Range Rover with Illinois plates and I had Illinois plates and all of a sudden the car, I'm in the fast lane, the, ra- the Range Rover pulls up and it's Jordan driving. And in the back seat right behind him was Gus Lett, who was one of the sniffers, his security detail. And, and Gus was his guy. As you, if you saw the last yeah. dance, they were very tight. And then John, was to Gus's right, who kind of had the white afro. He was, oh, he hit the shrug. He hit the shrug, right? The shrug, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, so yeah. Those, those were his guys. Those two. I know yeah. there was an entourage sometimes, but those were the two guys you would always see with him, and or the like the white Jerry curl, not the white afro, but um, but they were very friendly guys. And so we're driving in Santa Barbara, south towards L.A., maybe going sixty miles an hour, and this is three weeks after they beat the Sonics. And it was a quick conversation, maybe a minute or so. And I was asking Gus what they were doing in Santa Barbara. And he had an adult fantasy camp, Jordan did. And he loved to play the course there, Sandpiper all the time during the week that he had the camp. And they were driving in. I think Shaq had a birthday party in Malibu that night. And I think as I recall, I, I, ended the conversation just because it was just too surreal and I didn't want Jordan to take off. I wanted to kind of just, thanks you guys. Have a great time. <laughs> you know, right. Enjoy your trip. 
And I think for the rest of the ride, I, I was talking to the person in the passenger seat, I'm like, did that just happen? Did we just talk to Jordan in LA of all places? And I don't know if Jordan knew my name. He, he probably recognized me, but Gus I knew because Gus would always check your, your media badges. And so he knew and he would kind of, he was a former cop. Right. He worked for the United Center security detail and he was Jordan's guy. So he had a lot of different hats, but he would sign you in at gate three and a half at the United Center. So he knew me. You have a little conversation with him as he was checking your credential, your badge and all that. So Gus was a real good guy. And, and I'm glad they gave him a little time in that, uh, in that documentary. So did, so you guys just pulled over and just started talking? No, we kept on driving. As I remember, I just kind of pulled away. <laughs> you know? I didn't wait for, for Jordan to take off. I'm just like, I, did, I didn't want to like over. I, I don't know why I did that. I just didn't want to um, kind of take too much of his time, I guess. I'm right. like, he said hi. He just won a championship. Why? <laughs> He's still going. Yeah, yeah, they just won the first of the back end of the, right. the three in a row. So, yeah, it was the Sonics, Jazz, Jazz. So, yeah, they had just beaten Gary Payton and Sean Kemp. And that was August of 96. And uh, as long as that person still is alive, I have somebody to back me up on that story. Man, you should, you should film it so every time somebody questions you, you just be <laughs> like, no, he said it right here. This- yeah, just, it, yeah, I don't think I've ever, and I don't know how you could have a more incredible celebrity encounter than Jordan during the heyday of, no. of the Bulls there in LA right. on the 101 or in Santa Barbara. I mean, it was just crazy. That's just so random too, but not at the same time. <laughs> um, so before we get into the NFL network and all that, you say that right now, and basically you've always been a big time football fan. Is that right? Football has always been my favorite sport. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was a big Dodgers fan growing up. I'm not really a baseball fan anymore. As I get older, it's kind of harder to devote time to following sports with three young boys and the NFL is, is my job. So I try and keep up as much as I can. I probably know more players from the eighties than I do now. Um, you know, I used to know every single player and every on every roster, but it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's intense at times, but I really enjoy what I do. And, and NFL network was uh a place I always wanted to work when I was in Chicago. I knew it was in LA and at some point I wanted to go back home. And even though I live in St. Louis, I love St. Louis. I still commute to LA. Right. I've been doing that since 2011 when we um, came up here to live in St. Louis. So it's, I probably have the longest commute. In fact, I know I have the longest commute of anyone that works there. And luckily I don't do it every day, but it's a, it's a pretty cool uh, arrangement where I kind of work a lot of days during the football season. And then it's not as, as hectic during the off season. That's, that's awesome. So how about you tell the people what you do at the NFL network, how, uh, what it is. This is exciting for me. Like I was talking before, I'm going to be a fan. Uh, NFL network has been something I've always watched. I had to go to my friend's house and watch it. I, uh, me and Rich Eisen, when he had hair, that, that that's how I remember him. Um, but, uh, t- tell them how you got with them and how, yeah, and what you do. Yeah, so when I worked in Chicago, I worked at NBC for 10 years, and then I followed my wife. We were dating at the time, and this is 2005, and she got a job in Marquette, Michigan. So I was kind of out of the business for two years, and then the second stint in Chicago, I worked for Fox, and at Fox was a former Bears wide receiver named Tom Waddle. Okay. And Waddle, um, great guy, and yeah, for five years, he's 
Mike Ditka's second favorite player of all time, second right. favorite player, Walter being number one. But Tom was always a fan favorite, and he's had um, a great career post-playing, obviously broadcasting and, and doing talk radio for um, ESPN. And, and he always had a busy schedule. I mean, everybody wanted Tom to work for them, and, and he never did local sports, but he would do NFL Network. I think he would fly in on uh, Friday and, and be there on the weekends and come back to Chicago and do his normal gig. So Tom was my in at NFL Network, and he put in a good word for me. And I think most of the people there, that's how they, they got their first interview or um, got an opening somehow through word of mouth, through somebody that they knew. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the easiest place to, uh, to get a job, and there's a, a real difficult test. Um, when you interview, they want to test your NFL knowledge, and, and it's really, really? It's, a, it's a hard, hard test. You never get a result. You never get a score, but you kind of know how, how you did, basically, um, by just, yeah, in the post-interview, they'll tell you, yeah, you did pretty well, or you, you could have done better, or whatever, but they never tell you exactly your score. So what kind of stuff was that? Just, like, stats, uh, or, like, people's some names? Some very obscure stuff, like, what was the name of the moving company that the Baltimore Colts used to uh, move to Indianapolis uh, in the middle of the night? Mayflower. May- Mayflower. Very good. <laughs> um, what else? Um, of course, they wanted to know if you knew every head coach. And this, my interview was back in 2010, so I kind of prepared and I knew every coach anyway. Um, they wanted to know another random question: Who was the uh, the landscaper that worked for the 49ers? Or not the landscaper? I'm sorry, the greenskeeper for the 49ers who I guess had invented a certain type of turf. Yeah. Um, I've heard of them and I can't, I, I don't know. The George Toma. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. stuff like that was just off, it was just off the wall. And uh, it's been 10 years and I haven't seen the current exam. That's so stuff crazy. like that. Yeah. I mean, obviously they don't expect you to get a perfect score, but if you have trouble naming all 32 teams, that might be a red flag. Right. Right, and you say that you want to work for the NFL Network, and you don't know everything. Or no, yeah. the little we've thing. had a lot of talent who uh, <laughs> that will go nameless. And I, I've worked on uh, news updates for quite a bit. And I remember one guy who uh, I worked with didn't know who uh, Namdi Asamwa was. So he, Namdi Asamuga, as he was reading copy that I had written for a one minute update, and it's oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of uh, yeah. You, and if you don't know how to pronounce a name, I would think that you would ask somebody. The, our assignment desk is right behind where the news talent sits. And there are plenty of pronunciation keys you can find, right. in the media guides and whatnot. But to not know and then to just, as we were taping an update, to butcher a name like that was kind of revealing. No, I'm the awesome wall. He should have stayed with the Raiders I, as a Raider fan. He should have never left. Anyways. Yeah. Um, uh, so... <laughs> So you got there at 2010, and so did you jump? Where did you start? Did you do just total access? Were you, like, everywhere? What, what I was you? a segment producer and still am, even though I do different things now. Um, but I didn't. I work on Red Zone now, and that's been my most enjoyable right. show that I work on. I've done that for six years. But I did news primarily at the beginning. I was a news producer, so I would work a lot of – early morning shifts, 3 a.m. to 1 p.m., and we would have one minute, still do one minute updates on the hour. Yeah. Any news year round. Yeah. I remember. There's 
waking up in the middle of the night and you guys are still like doing things like <laughs> updating. Yeah, and it can be a little chaotic sometimes if there's breaking news, then you're the news crew is responsible for getting on the air, getting interviews, talking to somebody. If, if for example, in October of 2012, it was a Saturday morning when Al Davis died, and that happened on my watch, and that was a big story for us. And there had been some um, stories that he wasn't doing well. He had been at the Raiders game the previous Sunday. I yeah. Think. And they and barely, then, I remember they barely put the camera on him. Cause they yeah, were, he wasn't looking great. Yeah. So yeah. They, like, I remember they flashed at him and they, they didn't hit anything, but you could kind of tell like, okay, I, I don't think he's come. Cause they even said like, he wasn't going around the office as much and stuff like that. And like kind of slowing down. So like, I, I remember that. So the fact that you said that. But, and then, so we would break for an hour and I remember joking, <laughs> saying, okay, I need to, I'd have everyone's number in case we had breaking news. And back then we would break them for an hour and then we learned our lesson. No, we have to stay in place for the entire shift just in case something happens because we didn't have any relief. And I made a joke. Oh, this is of course when Al Davis dies. And t 10 minutes later, we, I got a call from, Eric Weinberger, our executive producer, head honcho, is like, take a look at the Raiders website. And I went on the Raiders website and it had Al Davis's dates. Um, right. When he was born when he died. And when the Raiders made it official, then you knew it was legitimate. And uh, so that, that we were on the air for maybe seven hours. Talked to Peter King, talked to uh, Matt Millen, John Matt, I mean, you name it. I mean, everyone that you can think of that would be a, a good interview who had something to say about Al Davis. Well, wasn't Kirk Morrison still there too at NFL Network? I'm sorry, who? Kirk Morrison. He was the linebacker for the Raiders. I remember he was doing stints with NFL Network. You know what? I think he predates uh, 2010. I don't okay. remember him when I was there. Um, that sounds about right. But uh, yeah, we, um, I mean, Eisen, it was a Saturday. So uh, I think they did call an Eisen to front that and and that that's happened before i mean steve sable passed away and they brought right. in eisen and um i remember our talent was somewhat green and yeah they i think they wanted <laughs> somebody who uh viewers recognized fronting right. that coverage pretty quickly right wow but yeah that was that was a big story and i've had a they used to call me the grim reaper on those news shifts because a lot of people died on my watch <laughs> and so it's uh um, not Don Shula, I wasn't there for that, but uh, we have all the obits ready to go for any Hall of Famer that's uh, over 60. Oh, There's really? And we had to retract them after Steve Sable passed away because he tracked all the obits. So then we had to, because you don't want somebody who's deceased doing the track, the narrative on an obit or <laughs> right. the narration. Right. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of, of big stories out there. And, and I think Jim Brown and John Madden probably be the biggest names out there if they were to pass away yeah it would be non-stop coverage for a long time mm -hmm. um yeah madden yeah i would I say think, so yeah madden um jim brown but, i think are pretty close you can make an argument i, I don't know if, if they passed away on the same day right who would be the lead but right i think they're both right there no i agree with that totally um so now you are segment producer for uh the red zone channel 
for so the media. I'm an EVS producer. EVS producer. EVS so. producer. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I, I'm an edit coordinator, an EVS producer, a segment producer. And so on Red Zone, I've been an EVS producer for six seasons. And that is by far the most fun I have there. And, and it's, it's a good group that we've been working with for a long time, especially in our kind of clown car of a room because we're not in the control room. EVS is adjacent to the control room where the director and the AD and the line producer are in the graphics row and, and audio has another room. And then we're um, in a room that has all the games up on monitors. There's an EVS producer in addition to myself and we kind of split the games. If there are 10 games, he has five, I have five. We both have EVS operators and we have spotters. So our job is to clip off anything that we don't see live. Um, and if we're on a game and there's a touchdown, then it's coming from EVS. So EVS is in all the, the broadcasting trucks. It's replays come off EVS, quick interviews come off EVS. And it's, uh, it, it's yeah, it, it gets uh, heated sometimes to say the least because there's so much that happens in a short period of time when you have 11 games and you want to – you see an incredible catch that you know viewers are going to love, and sometimes it just doesn't work out. If it's three minutes, four minutes old, it's kind of now uh, right. a little dated, and, and so that's the battle. Sometimes you, it's almost similar to somebody made the comparison to an air traffic controller lighting up planes on the runway. We have six or seven clips parked and ready to go, and there are only so many that you can get to. And right. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's a fun job. And how stressful does that get? Oh, I mean, if if you're trying to get the clips up to make, so everybody that's watching happy. There's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure because we do have mistakes from time to time. Of course, over the course of a 17 game season or 17 week season, I should say, they're going to be mistakes and, and sometimes a clip might run prematurely or we didn't get the angle that they wanted. And yeah, it's, you have to learn to, to not get too caught up in a mistake if it does happen and move on. <laughs> right. I mean, it's live TV and, and you can talk about something after the fact. And we've had post-mortem meetings where, where Scott will bring up something that he thought could have been better. And, and we all agree, but I think for the most part, we, uh, we deliver pretty consistently and it's, it's the rare Sunday where we felt that we dropped the ball or we didn't measure up. Okay. Um, while you're sitting there, are you able to, you do you have to be so zoned in that you don't, you you're making clips and not, you know, they're good. Are you enjoying them at the same time? Or you're just like it then and out. I can't enjoy this at all. You get what I'm well, trying we to have, say. Every touchdown, of course, airs on red zone. And right. then and we have jargon that Scott will use on the air, a game rewind, which if we go to a game that we haven't seen in the last few minutes or so, and there's right. a play that sets up why this team is now in the red zone or they're close to the red zone, we want to see it, especially if it's like a 50-yard Derrick Henry run right. or a great Julio Jones catch that was pivotal to that drive, um, I'll sell it hard. Like, hey, we've got to get this catch on. And sometimes it takes a lot of selling <laughs> by the EVS producer. And you're talking to people and you sometimes don't know if they heard you and you're 
So it, it's always good to be redundant and just get on the PL, which is uh. how we communicate, to say, hey, did you hear me? We've got this catch. You have to get it on. Yeah, we heard you. We're going to get it on shortly. <laughs> but we do have, if there are two games where one each team in each game is in the red zone, we go back and forth. Sometimes that's problematic because you have other stuff that you want to get on the air, yet we kind of just go back and forth between the two games, the game to game, and, and – and I know that's what viewers want too. That's exciting, but there's also so much stuff sometimes that just happens in such a short period, and it's like a burst of, of touchdowns and, and great plays. And sometimes they just don't make it, unfortunately. It's that the the way that you're saying like, ah, uh, some plays don't make it. Me as a me as a viewer, I think that this has. The red zone has revolutionized watching Sunday Sunday day football with fantasy and everything going on. I rarely go like, oh, I wish I saw that because I know one at least for me. Like, I know there's other way later on on the NFL Network they'll recap games, so I know that I'll be able to see it. So yeah. So the fact that you're saying like you guys make it seem like it's not like you guys make it seem seamlessly, but yeah, and sometimes I mean the hardest part is maybe trying to find an injury where there wasn't a replay, but we have to clip off a playlist for a big name player that is out of the game. We don't know why. And so we're, we're trying to do, um, we have two sources that we can play live and then we have five or six remote, six games that we can bring in. So there's a lot of moving parts that are always happening. And, and the difficult thing is to go back and try and find something, get a time code. Hey, when did that play happen? So I'm on um, this website that has up to the second information about down and distance. And sometimes I'm going into the computer to get a log of a PA who's logging the game in an edit bay that's on the opposite side of the network, trying to find a time code. You get used to certain things that, uh, that work for you. And so after six or seven years, and then you're, you're scrolling social media because sometimes I remember finding at the uh, beginning of uh, the second half of a Vikings game, I remember this old guy was running right across the tunnel as the Vikings were coming out. And he got run over. I think I saw it on CBS during their halftime show. So I'm trying to find out. We go back to the, the raw reel of the Vikings, um, trying to find that. We didn't. I sold it, and it made air, and it was pretty good. So you feel good about those things when you catch something that maybe you could have easily missed. Right. And there's sideline scuffles. And, um, and so, yeah, it, it's, there, there's always something happening. So a, a good spotter is crucial to, to not missing things. And sometimes you have your spotters behind you that are more caught up in their fantasy football and you have to kind of get on them and yeah. say, hey, especially in the afternoon when you go from like 11 games in the morning to sometimes three or four, it's easy to exhale. And sometimes that's when the mistakes happen, when you only have two games. Right. And I'm listening to sound. I'm focused on the two games. And that's when they're asking for something that just happened. You're like, okay, <laughs> I've got to focus again. You know, it's, it's, right. it's crazy because you're in there in that room for seven hours. And it's hard to, to keep that intensity up the entire time, of course. I, I always thought that when, when, uh, when you guys go on your break, when almost every team is at halftime, I have to say, like, listening to Scott Hansen, like, just watching it, I'm like, you guys have to exhale right there, right? Like, <laughs> oh, we got, yeah, we, got, and, and, we got a minute. Just to like let these halftime run and everything. Yeah, once in a while, it's it's um, there are a lot of Sundays where we don't we have highlights 
first half highlights of all the early games clipped off that get pushed um, from an edit bay to our server. And I'd say 80% of the time, we don't even use those highlights because we don't need to. But once, it, once in a while, yeah, all, it's, it's bizarre, but you'll have six or seven games and they all go to commercial break at the same time. Yeah. Where they all go to halftime and you're kind of, okay, what are we going to do? And then we have backups where we can um, get uh, a shot of a player walking into a stadium that's going to play in a later game. Right. We'll clip that off. If it's like a Dak Prescott, we can always sell that. The Cowboys right. uh, pregame, uh, you know, walk-in shots are always going to get on air. <laughs> right, right. So you, you, you it's, already it's, know. It's fun. And, and sometimes, you know, at the end of a long seven-hour day, you're like, oh, I need a break from this. But there's nothing like the, the anticipation. Like at 9.50, we've, we've clipped off our quad box. Oh, man. Ready to go. And it's, it's, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's my favorite part of, of working in TV over 24 years. The best thing that I've ever done. I love it. Uh, man, uh, going back to NFL network, you told me you have a lot of names down here that you have interviewed in it, in everything, the entertainers and the talent that comes through there has to be one mind blowing to crazy to see that like these people that you never thought you would ever meet before or see before come in front of you. How that experience? Yeah. I mean, um, we, we have some pretty well-known talent, a lot of hall of famers who work at NFL network and they're all very accomplished, very good guys on the air, good guys off the air. I don't really see, I, I know the morning show, good morning football. They get a lot of entertainment types that will come on the set there in New York. And so as far as celebrities, there've been a few that um, like a Paul Rudd that might come, he's a big Chiefs right. fan and you see him and, and yeah, it's not uncommon at all. And uh, Vince Vaughn was somebody that I brought on to NFL network to track a bears feature um, for their centennial that they played for their fan convention. So I was kind of doing a favor for a friend of mine who works with the bears to get Vince Vaughn, on our property to, to track this. Uh, oh, that's cool. This two minute, yeah, feature. So that, that stuff like that happens every now and then. It's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's you just, you, I guess you just get used to it. It's, it. It becomes, it's probably like working on a lot at Paramount. If, if you do that day in and day out, you know, mm -hmm. initially, yeah, it's cool. And then every day is, is similar to the previous day and it's not a big deal. Uh, but still, interviewing Jordan, <laughs> that never seemed to, to get old. That was uh, the aura that that guy has is, is unlike any other athlete I've ever been close to. I, mean, oh. I think there's something very unique and for good reason about Michael Jordan. That um, yeah, I don't know if there's a football player that, that has that. Probably Tom Brady. I've never interviewed Tom Brady. I, 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 don't I would guess that maybe he comes as close as somebody might. In the world of sports. in the in yeah in the world of football in yeah now. in the NFL yeah I I don't see anybody I I don't see where Jordan commanded a room just like in the in the documentary he would how he was ransacked basically and when he was playing in Spain where ev with all the fans there the oh, oh yeah he didn't have any time to get away he not like some of these other guys they were going over there they're not even getting noticed he's mm -hmm. still getting noticed there so I could totally see how that it is.
And in the last dance, I forget which, which episode it was, but he's in a hotel room and um, just talking about this is the time that he enjoys the most where he just lounges on a couch and watches TV. And because it's just crazy. And I think, I think maybe that was the last interview um, to set up the next week's episode or the last part of episode right. six. Just, yeah, I can't do this for much longer. I, when I'm done with this game, I'm going to be through with this. Yeah. And he kind of has, um, I'm sure now he's, he's been thrust back in the spotlight with the last dance and, and he's getting a lot of requests again and, and he's hot and um, his memorabilia is, is, is through the roof, through the roof again. Exactly. But he kind of did, you didn't see him in Chicago a whole lot. And, and he went to the wizards and then he's been president of the Bobcats and, and he, I know he lives in Florida, but yeah, he, uh, that must've been just a huge break for him to get away from, from totally. just the day in and day out of, of just being hounded constantly. Um, I totally agree with that. I got, I got another question about another athlete just cause he's kind of in the, um, in the news right now, Randy Moss, he's, he has, uh, uh, you said that you, um, interviewed him. The only reason why I pointed out to me, cause there's a lot of people out there trying to think that he should take the Monday night football job um, through the, on the internet and stuff like that. And I totally agree with his charisma and uh, his love for the game. I just kind of, since I saw that and before we, uh, I let you go, can you talk about Randy Moss and how that was and how yeah, he no, had good of a person um, as he is on TV? I remember it was when the bears played in Champaign, they were renovating soldier field. So they played, in Champaign where the University of Illinois football team plays for a year. And so it was a, it was a Vikings bears game, bears home game in Champaign. I think he had a real good game, but there was something leading up to that Sunday where he was the, the focus for something that happened off the field. And so everybody who normally goes right to the bears locker room on the Chicago side went to the Minnesota side, the Minnesota locker room to get some reaction I just remember he uh, he cut it short pretty quickly. He was not in a good okay. mood, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, um, no, he kind of had that prickly reputation where he was hot and cold sometimes, and right. a lot of athletes do. I mean, it's um, yeah. I think uh, we talked about hockey players. To me, are always the most consistently uh, approachable, laid back, just always very. Gracious, like the, the biggest goon of all time, Bob Probert was the nicest guy right. to talk to. And baseball players, I think if you ask most people who've gone in the locker rooms and clubhouses would say baseball players tend to be sometimes the most ornery and, and you get it because they're asking, I mean, they're being asked the same questions over 162 game season. And there are only so many questions you can ask. And I think the beat writers and the players tend to tire of each other after you know, four months of the season. And you that's why they used to. to rotate beat riders just to kind of give them some new scenery. Um, but yeah, baseball players, the, the White Sox had some players back in the nineties that you would keep your distance from like an Albert Bell, you know, or a Tony Phillips, <coughs> uh, Frank Thomas. If he had a good game, he was somebody who would chat. If, if he had you know, three strikeouts, you knew that wasn't going to probably be a good uh, interview or, no interview for that matter in, in the clubhouse, but and the Cubs, yeah, the Cubs were always uh, 
pretty accommodating for the most part. I mean, there were some personalities, of course, that, that uh, like a Rod Beck, I think, uh, who, who, yeah, wasn't the, um, the easiest interview at times, but Sammy Sosa, you, you kind of got the sense. I think Rod Beck actually was the one who took a, a bat to a boombox of Sammy Sosa because he was always playing salsa music in the clubhouse. And so there was some tension even with the Cubs. But um, no, I, I really enjoy my time in, in Chicago. And, and I, like I said, it was very fortunate to cover the Bulls in, in, from 95 to 98 and then uh, also be part of that home run chase in 98 as well between McGuire and Sosa and Bonds. And uh, looking back, and I was at the Bartman uh, game six in the NLCS in 2003 when they were five outs away. The Cubs are five outs away. And back then it seemed like a Cubs World Series would have uh, dwarfed any championship the Bulls ever had, any celebration. And, and that town, it was almost like you were just waiting. You felt it was going to happen. And with five outs to go, that's when it unraveled. And the, the celebration that we all anticipated uh, for the Cubs to um, get to the World Series, it, it, it was just surreal, that moment too. And then what happened and everything that followed that. So I, yeah, I was real lucky. I, I packed a lot of uh, exciting stuff in 10 years in Chicago when I was at NBC, that's for sure. That's insane. Where were you? So where were were you in the uh, press box while that the bar? I was in the press box. Yeah, Um, it was so cool to be at Wrigley Field too because you're so close. I mean, that's such an antiquated stadium, and for a regular season game, you could go to where the photogs are um, in in the dugout well that's adjacent to the dugout, kind of as you get closer to the bullpen, and. That was where I would go if uh, you know, I got to the ballpark in the seventh inning or eighth inning. And uh, but for that that series, yeah, they they had um, a new press box that was built that was at the top deck. So we had a real high vantage point, and uh, and then yeah, everything that followed. I, no one really knew. I think looking back, the worst thing that could have happened to Steve Bartman was Moises Alou's reaction to to not. It really was. Yeah, and, and that, you know, everyone remembers him looking up, agitated, upset. And I don't think if you had his reaction, it would have been um, the, the horrible no. uh, ensuing uh, um, thing for Steve Bartman, for lack of a better word, that, uh, that followed him and where he was scapegoated and, and basically the one who, who prevented the Cubs from getting to the World Series. Yeah, I mean – Watching the uh, – I forget what the 30 for 30 is called, but they did a 30 for 30 on that, that whole situation. And just like it, – one, it wasn't his fault that it ha- that they lost the game because there was still more outs. And then somebody made like the next play, somebody missed a ground roll, like an easy like uh, stop at second and it missed or something like that. So there was things that unraveled in that situation. But – And he uh, worked for – at the time and still does uh, – company my mother-in-law – worked for for a long time in, in Chicago and they had to send him to Florida because of all the uh, hate mail and the death threats and everything. And supposedly he was the nicest guy still is never cashed in his, on his fame. And he, and he was offered a lot of money to do interviews and you've never seen him once ever talk about it. And I think he was a boy scout leader. 
troop leader and and just yeah it was in the wrong place at the wrong time and there were other people surrounding him yeah could have easily been vilified like like steve bartman there there were the other people who had their hands out right next to him yeah so like it wasn't it just happened to be him um <laughs> just he just looked the part of a scapegoat unfortunately he really did and he like it's just a he looked weak so he's easy to pounce on yeah. and it didn't yeah it just it was that whole yeah you had a sea of hands there but yeah. poor guy with the headphones in and uh, looking a little mousy and yes that was it oh so bad well i gotta say i could probably sit with you for a long time and if you if you don't mind sometime in the future maybe doing another one to talk about because i i wanted to get i we could talk all day about the the home run uh war with sammy and mcguire and stuff like that um but it's getting a little late i know we both have kids that we have to wake up to uh, yeah uh if that's okay with you maybe next time do another time absolutely yeah until uh yeah i've told all my stories and, and i'm a broken record absolutely perfect perfect so we got at least 800 900 uh, episodes with you then okay good yeah some yeah. good dennis robin stories he was our uh analyst on sunday nights during his last two seasons in chicago and and that was uh Always interesting to see Robin come in, always reeking of sake with an entourage that included, you know, like Billy Corgan and Eddie Vedder and Jean-Claude Van Damme and, of course, Carmen Electra. It was just, <laughs> that, was, that was interesting to say the least. But um, no, I yeah, a lot of, lot of good memories from uh, my Chicago days. That, well, that's the way to keep everybody uh, ready for <laughs> next time you come on. All well, right. Yeah, we'll start right there. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, I want to thank, uh, before I thank you, I want to thank uh, Jim Barucci. How do you say his name? Oh, yeah. the uh, Who introduced us. I didn't say his name in the beginning. Yeah, our contractor who's yeah, been a huge help. Um, Brucetti, I think. Brucetti, yeah. Um, and, put me on the spot there. Yeah, let's go sorry. with Jim Brucetti. <laughs> yeah. Um, so him and my wife, they talked, and that's how we, and I just wanted to say thank you to Jim. Um, that was very nice of him and thank you for all i've only talked to you once on the phone you could tell i was very nervous in the beginning thank you for uh dealing with me and uh working with me but uh thank you for the interview i was very excited no, ht no my pleasure yeah it was a lot of fun to talk to you awesome um i'm gonna press stop on it and then i'll say goodbye at the end but uh everybody this was uh, uh mccormick and thanks for listening That was an awesome interview. Thank you again, uh, McCormick O'Meara. Um, those are great stories. I cannot wait to talk about next time he comes on about Dennis Rodman and uh, his interactions with him. Uh, awesome. Thanks, thanks McCormick. Thanks, my wife. Um, thanks, Jim, for making this all happen. Uh, really awesome experience. Uh, before I uh, end the day, I just want to say... Uh, this world has been crazy. Um, a lot of things going on. A lot of stuff happening. Um, anybody out there, just keep your head up with all this crazy stuff going on. Uh, talk to people that that need to be talked to. Um, get answers. Get information. Um, I got some things planned uh, for this next coming week. Um, that I think everybody will enjoy. Um, 
yeah i hope you guys enjoyed this interview um nice quick one nice quick 50 minute interview <laughs> or uh, episode um stay safe everybody uh as usual i miss sports they're coming on back but i miss them um be safe be with your family uh hug them dearly um yeah oh usually i said stay inside be safe but what is coronavirus anymore right um <laughs> keep doing your thing i don't know how to send this one off it was a good episode to me i love y'all for listening uh, share this around um get ready for the next pod on wednesday that uh hopefully i can get it done by then um thanks everybody and as always come on back to the cadillac ranch you hear Well, the well went dry and the cow did too Daddy didn't know what to do The banker came by the house one day Said he's gonna take the farm away Then mama came up with a plan Brother and me started up a band Sister put a sign on the roof Daddy bought a case of 90 proof Now we call it the Cadillac Ranch they're parking cars in the old bee patch There's a bar in the barn and the place stays packed Till the cows come home at Cadillac Range Now the only thing that we raise is cane You don't need the sun or rain Just neon lights and some ice cold beer Keeps everything green around here Mama takes the cash at the door Brother and me keep them out on the floor Sister sets them up at the bar Daddy kicks back with a big cigar Now we call it the Cadillac Ranch They're parking cars in the old bee patch There's a bar in the barn and the place stays packed Till the cows come home at Cadillac Ranch The only horns around here today Are the ones up on the grill Of a genuine 59 Coup de Ville Now we call it the Cadillac Ranch They're parking cars in the old bee patch There's a bar in the barn and the place stays packed Till the cows come home at Cadillac Ranch Now we call it the Cadillac Ranch they're parking cars in the old bee patch There's a bar in the barn and the place stays packed yeah. Till the cows come home at Cadillac Ranch